is a special day on Pop Culture Happy Hour. We recently packed up and road tripped to New York to check out some selections from the current Broadway theater season. We went to musicals and plays, revivals and new works. That's right, we saw a lot of the current Tony nominees. Saw everything from a new Oklahoma to social media hit Be More Chill, and we have a lot of thoughts. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. This is our great big Broadway roundup, so don't go away. Support for this podcast and the following message come from WordPress.com. With powerful site-building tools and thousands of themes to choose from, WordPress.com lets their users pursue what they love by launching a site that's free to start with room to grow. Their customer support team is made of actual WordPress experts who are standing by to help you 24 hours a day, including weekends. And WordPress users own their content forever. Get 15% off any new plan purchase at wordpress.com slash happy hour. Welcome back. You just met NPR Music's Stephen Thompson. Also with us is Glenn Weldon of the NPR Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Linda. And in our fourth chair today, who else could it possibly be for our theater roundup? Our friend and original... PCHH panelist, Trey OG. Graham. Welcome back, Trey. <laughs> yeah, hey, guys. It's always so good to see you. So what we did is we went to New York. We were there for several days. We split uh, mostly into pairs, sometimes into singles, and saw different things at different times. We're going to start off by talking about something that Stephen and I saw together, which is Be More Chill. Now, if you are not uh, familiar with Be More Chill... It had a regional run in 2015. It kind of fizzled out. And then they did a cast album, which they put online, which proceeded to be listened to a gazillion times, was sort of discovered by, I think, some of the same kind of theater kid types, whether they are still theater kids or adult former theater kids. And so uh, then it made a comeback. It was off Broadway last year, and it is now uh, on Broadway at the Lyceum Theater. Stephen and I saw this. I really enjoyed Be More Chill, but I want to throw to Stephen to explain kind of what it's about, because you really were just beaming the whole time. Yeah, I loved this thing. At, in the very first minutes of this show, it seems to be one very simple thing that you've seen many, many times before. There is a nerd. He cannot get laid. He is sad. And it goes off from there into this bizarre story where he is is given access to a pill that contains a supercomputer that trains his brain how to be a cool guy. And from there, the show does right by so many characters and just has more and more fun as it gets sillier and louder, more visually inventive, more sonically inventive. It is a very loud production. I just got such a huge kick out of it and was fascinated, among other things, by the crowd around us. A couple rows in front of us, uh, there was a couple that that appeared to be more Broadway veterans who walked out about five, ten minutes into the second act. But everyone else looked about 20 years old and was having the time of their lives. And this show was not nominated for Best Musical, which I think a lot of people thought that it would be. It was nominated for its score, which is something great for a musical. But it was not nominated in some of the categories they thought it might be. And when Stephen and I saw it, they were only a few days removed from the nominations coming out. And at the end of the show, they did a thing where they said, we've had a really emotional few days and we decided we're going to do a kind of a, it was like an encore, but it was a, they brought a keyboard on stage and the, the writer of the show just kind of redid a number from the show with the actor. You can tell there's a give and take between 
this show and the people who love it. And when he asked how many people, uh, you know, have been here before or already know this song or know all the words to this song, large reaction. Mm. Um, Many, many people are multiple viewers of this show. You can tell that it's very, very loved. Why do you think those people walked out? What what do you think they were not reacting to? There is uh, a certain amount of kind of sex and vulgar and and, uh, not a ton, but there's some. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's about teenage boys and girls and discovering their bodies and all that stuff. And there's some of that. I think it might have been that. It's also loud. It's also just loud. It doesn't necessarily present the way a traditional Broadway show does. which for me is one of the things that made me really sad about how lightly nominated it was for Tony Awards. I have a feeling the Tony Awards telecast is June 9th, and I have a feeling that Be More Chill, they're going to try to find a way to get it into that telecast because this is the audience that Broadway is desperately trying to reach. This Mm -hmm. is the audience that everyone is trying to reach. Yeah, well, let's let's pivot to another show that also covers the high school experience. Mm -hmm. It is The Prom. Yep. And Glenn, you are our authority on this show. Uh-huh. Tell me about it. I loved it, mostly because it was pandering directly to the Glens of this world. You got your solid jokes, you got your queer characters, you got show tunes. I am not made of stone. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> this is a traditional musical. It It is up for best musical, best book, best score, best leading actor and actress, and best direction. It's about a bunch of horribly self-involved Broadway actors who are coming off a monumental flop of their show, Eleanor colon the musical that was like first joke in and i was like i vibing with this already the first number happens after they've gotten a rave but it's from a new jersey paper but they're very excited (laughs) about it and before the new york notices come in they start to sing and they're relieved because it means that this tour de force will not be forced to tour Uh, boom that right there is a solid piece of business uh i am in Uh, They decide that they have to reform the image and they will become celebrity activists. They don't care about what, but they find out about the small town in Indiana that is not letting a young woman take another young woman to the prom. So they descend on this town in a cloud of condescending (laughs) self-regard. This is Beth LaBelle as Broadway diva Dee Dee Allen. And the song is It's Not About Me. But it's not about me. It's about poor Emma. Emma. Can't you see the raw deal she's been dealt? So hear my plea, or here's your next dilemma. How do you silence a woman who's known for her belt? Sing it, Eleanor! Her belt! All right, you get the idea. Uh, it's really well staged, too. There's a number called You Happen when all the straight couples in the school are promposing to each other. And the two lesbians uh, step to the front of the stage. Two scrims come in from either side. And they're not really, you can see through them because they're basically just a wall of folding chairs. And so we see through that as they're having this very tender little moment just off the two of them while behind them, the heteronormativity is running rampant. Everybody's dancing and coupling up. And It works so well because they have found a a space under the bleachers, clearly, and they're kind of safe. But while all this is going on, if anybody looked in their direction, they would see them. So they're they're set apart to have this moment, but they're still in the mix of the uh, school. I I just loved it. It's very, very, very funny. Lots of uh, uh, theater in jokes. It's great. All right. The prom gets a rave <laughs> mm-hmm. from our Glenn Weldon. Speaking of raves, I think the the current buzz around the Tony Awards was particularly strong for Hadestown, which received the 
largest number of nominations and is nominated for practically everything that it's eligible for. I'm sure that's not technically true, but Trey and Stephen, you both saw Hades Town. I'm going to start with Trey, just because we haven't heard your melodious <laughs> voice yet. Um, tell me about Hades Town. For people who aren't familiar with it, what is it? So it has in common with Be More Chill that it's been kicking around out there for a long time, developing a following on social media. Yeah, she's been working on this thing for 13 years. Anais Mitchell, the, the playwright, right. uh, who's also a wonderful musician, mm-hmm. she put out an album called Hades Town with the bones of this story in 2010. Okay. Uh, it's been performed off-Broadway setting in Canadian production. It went to London for a production at the National Theatre uh, just in the past year, and that was the incarnation that finally came to Broadway was the London cast, basically. So there are recordings of this out there. People know the music, so they're going in ready to be happy. And boy, is it a show that makes you happy. For an ancient tragedy yeah. based yeah. on a Greek myth, uh, this show is absolutely full of joy, to me, anyway. Yeah. So you say ancient tragedy, that tragedy is what? It is the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, you know, the musician and his lady partner, and she dies is in the underworld. He can't live without her. He plays his uh, traditionally lyre, and the stones weep, and the lord of the underworld, Hades, is moved to give him a second chance Uh and uh, try to take her up to the world of the living again. It doesn't end well. Yeah. Oh, dear. Uh, so, Stephen, you were very excited to see this also. Tell me how you felt about Town. Well, I was a, a big fan of the album by Anais Mitchell, as I, as I mentioned. I saw this at the New York Theatre Workshop in 2016, where they were starting to form what would become this incredibly lavish and arty and beautifully constructed stage presentation. I've always loved it. I think that a few of the minor issues that I've had with it carried through to this production. I think the performances of Patrick Page as Hades and Amber Gray as Persephone, those actors were in the production that I saw in 2016 and in this as well. They are magnificent, and those characters are very fully fleshed out. They are very complex. The characters of Orpheus and Eurydice are a little bit bearer by comparison. Now, in fairness, I saw it with an understudy in the role of Eurydice. It is ordinarily this very, very, very Tony-nominated acclaimed uh, a performance by Eva Noblezada. I saw it with an understudy named Jesse Shelton. Regardless, I felt like those characters still felt a little bit underwritten. And the Orpheus character, I, I maintain, having seen this production now twice, is almost impossible to cast and perform because this guy is supposed to sing, as you said, Trey, in a manner that makes the stones weep. He is supposed to sing you the most beautiful song. He has been working forever on the most beautiful song in the world. And then they try to present that song, and it can't possibly do that. And there's some stagecraft, some gimmickry that they use to suggest that in the way that in, say, Spring Awakening, when they wanted to create a beautiful moment that was kind of transcendent, they would use singing sign because this was a production that was both spoken and in sign language. Uh, They would use these beautiful gestures. In this production, when he begins to sing that song, the chorus echoes his voice Mm -hmm. in a kind of haunting and really, to me, quite striking and beautiful way. But I get you. It's a very tough part. I would push back and say that a number of, I think, ill-informed reviews have said that the characters are too thin. They are thin characters. It is a myth. They are archetypes. They're not meant to be deeply rooted in reality. We tell this story over and over again, as the narrator of the play says. 
because it has something to tell us about our lives and how we live and why we live. Well, and there is a showstopper at the end of the first act. It is a showstopper in the 2016 version that I saw. It is a showstopper on the 2010 album called Why We Build the Wall. Mm -hmm. And it is very powerful and it is very resonant, but it is also just an absolutely magnificent piece of stagecraft. They do wonderful things with this production visually and sonically. I, I highly recommend it. When I state my reservations, I'm not saying I don't highly, highly yeah. recommend it. With noting that the director of this is Rachel Chavkin, yes. who also brought Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet to Broadway. She has a thing for just kinetic, vibrant, curious mm -hmm. stagings. Well, there are very inventive women behind this. Anais Mitchell, the playwright, is the only woman in 10 years to be the solo author of a Broadway musical. Rachel Chavkin, the director, is one of three women directing on Broadway out of 36 productions in, uh, on Broadway. It really shows. Hmm. And I do want to mention, because Stephen mentioned the, the dearth of women directors, I do want to mention briefly that there is a whole category of really interesting shows that dealt with race this year mm. that had mostly closed by the time we got there. Yeah. Uh, we did not get an opportunity to see American Son with Kerry Washington. We did not get an opportunity to see Choir Boy, which is nominated for Best Play, which is by uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney, who wrote the play that became Moonlight and is a wonderful writer. A uh, MacArthur genius playwright. Yeah, uh, absolutely. If you have not seen those plays on Broadway already, you will be seeing them at regional theaters uh, near you. Right, and it's an oddity of the timing, but also mm -hmm. a reminder that at any given time, there are limited number of things running on Broadway, and there are times when you come and Broadway looks very, very white. And mm -hmm. in fact, um, one of the few big Tony nominees that we missed is the uh, Temptations jukebox musical, <laughs> Ain't Too Proud, which I would have loved to go to, but I don't think about jukebox musicals when I'm thinking about what I want to go to, but that is a huge uh, Tony nominee that we yeah. missed. Uh, we have one more before our break, and I want to talk about Oklahoma, which Trey and I saw together Holy. at Circle in the Square. So this production, if you know Oklahoma, it is a very traditional musical in a lot of ways. Sunny. A, a very sunny, traditionally uh show about young farm girl Lori, who is in love with cowboy Curly, but also is being pursued by farmhand Judd. Uh, there is a side story involving the sexually adventurous Ado Annie and her boyfriend Will, who is trying to get her to kind of settle down with him. <laughs> this has been promoted as a the dark Oklahoma, which yes. in some ways it is, but Oklahoma has always been dark. Trey, would you agree? There has always been a dark underside to Oklahoma. Yes. There has also always been a dark underside to Carousel mm -hmm. and uh, a Showboat, and uh -huh. The King and I, and all these other South shows Pacific. that people, South Pacific, <laughs> all these things that uh, people remember as these bright golden hazes on the meadow mm -hmm. shows. And, um, you know, they've always dealt with the uglier impulses in any given society, right? Regardless of... Yeah whether they're treating the Oklahoma frontier or Siam, as they call it right. in The King and I. This is darker than usual. I'll give you that. I think what they do is they treat more in a kind of open way. They treat how dark it is. They yes. treat it like a sad story instead of like a happy story. That even happens though it's, to have some shadows. Even though it's basically the same story. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really liked about it from a musical perspective is that 
you know, set in Oklahoma, involving, you know, people with cattle and talking about cattle and farming mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And they decided musically, I think, to really lean into the country music mm-hmm. elements that can be drawn from the score. I want to play you a little bit of their take on People Will Say We're In Love. This is actually a performance that the actors did on live from here, as opposed to being taken from an actual performance of Oklahoma. But this is how they present it in the show. Let's hear a little bit of it. Don't pray. just kind of leaning into that country ballad steel guitar. You know, I had forgotten how much yodel that guy used until we played that. It's all there in the song, but this presentation of it leans much more into the country music elements of it. The same thing is true of the performance of I'm Just a Girl Who Can't Say No. Mm. She gets into a very kind of country star moment. Yes, she does. uh, (laughs) That's a little bit different from the way you'll normally see that. That actress, by the way, is Ali Stroker who uses a wheelchair, which when you first see her, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then by the end of the show, I completely forgot. And I sort of came out of it thinking, oh, yeah, I should remember to mention that it's very rare to see. And I believe she's the first Tony nominee, the first sort of onstage Tony nominee to use a wheelchair in her in her role. It's a super interesting staging. I enjoyed it so much. I keep thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I would love to see it two or three more times, to be (laughs) honest, because I don't think I got everything out of it. It's wonderful. I really, really enjoyed it, and I'm so glad they made it, and I love the music. We are going to take a break. We're going to come back. We have so much still to come. We have Shakespeare. We have Cher, and we have a whole lot more, so come right back. I'm Jesse Thorne. Timothy Simons played Jonah Ryan on HBO's Veep. On a show known for its insults, has anybody got more of them than Jonah? If the cruelty registered, our show would be an hour and 15 minutes long because every scene would be like, excuse me, you can't speak to me that way. This week on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. We are in the middle of our Broadway roundup from our recent trip to New York, and we are going to go right to Glenn and Trey, who saw Glenda Jackson in King Lear. Talk to me, fellas. I am here because I am your theater nerd. Mm -hmm. I am notoriously a Shakespeare nerd. Mm -hmm. I am also here to poo-poo this production of Mm -hmm. King Lear. It has gotten raves around the world uh, because it is Glenda Jackson's King Lear. She is playing one of the titanic roles in the repertory, and she is one of the great talents of our time. And it is a big central performance that is absolutely worth watching, and the play around it is horribly uneven, and you can see better at any good classical theater in the country. You're yeah. not a big fan of Lear in general, are you? No, it's fine. I, I, <laughs> I'm aware I of mean, its work. <laughs> <laughs> it is a complicated and ultimately very moving play. It grinds you down yeah. and makes you feel for its characters. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot. Yeah, Glenn, how you feel? It's three and a half hours, not to put too fine a point on it. It's three and a half hours, which is a, a lot of anything, and I know that makes me a Philistine. But look, this performance, as Trey said, is uh, fierce, not just in the gay sense. It's just actually she. there is so much bile pouring out of mm. this tiny woman on stage <laughs> at all at all points. And at intermission, the first intermission, uh, <laughs> Trey turned to me and said, now who, do, who in popular culture, who is she sort of channeling? And I said, Mr. Burns? And he said, <laughs> Smeagol. 
and he was right. Uh, that is not to say it's it's something to see, but it made me wish I had seen her in Three Tall Women last year as yeah. opposed to yes. this, because the play around him, as he said, is is just wildly crowded, it's unfocused. So by act five, I had kind of lost the thread. Yeah. I got to say, he said three and a half hours. Lear does not need to be three and a half hours. <laughs> this Lear is taking its time and it's doing it in ways that, to me, as somebody who's seen a bunch of Lears and a bunch of Shakespeare, just not very interesting, frankly. Yeah. You know, they got a, original music by Philip Glass and they got the quartet on the stage and, you know, that just sucks up time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that music. Yeah. I mean, Glenda Jackson was not nominated for a Tony for mm-hmm. this in what seemed to be the biggest upset of the season. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, the play, at least in the New York reviews, got the th- same thing we're basically saying. Great performance doesn't anchor this mm-hmm. wild play. So maybe just the, the fact that the play itself didn't get the kind of notices people were expecting? I don't know. Well, Stephen Stephen brought up snubs from the Tonys, and I do want to mention another one that we didn't see on this trip, but that I saw on a previous trip to New York, which is the production of To Kill a Mockingbird that was adapted for the stage by Aaron Sorkin, starring Jeff Daniels. I have such a a long love-hate relationship with Aaron Sorkin's writing. He is one (laughs) of the biggest influences on the way I think about dialogue, but at the same time, I find his storytelling enormously frustrating. And it is not perhaps surprising that his focus in To Kill a Mockingbird is on the story of great man Atticus Finch and how he tries to be a greater man and his struggles to be a great man. That's not entirely what the book is about, and it's not entirely what previous incarnations of the book have been about. I did not appreciate the real shift in focus to Atticus and to Jem, the brother, as opposed to Scout, the sister. It, uh-huh. I just feel like Sorkin is <laughs> most Color me comfortable. not surprised. I feel like Sorkin is most comfortable writing for men and boys, which isn't necessarily a bad thing unless you're doing Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. You know what I mean? <laughs> I found it a disappointing adaptation, even though... The production is sort of aggressively competent. It is polished. It is well done. These are people who know how to put on a play. There is a lot of thinking that they got snubbed from the Tonys because of a controversy over them going around and stopping people from performing other stage adaptations of To Kill a Mockingbird in, you know, small little community theaters, mm-hmm. that that was kind of a big footing move that wasn't appreciated and that, that <laughs> may have stood in the way. I didn't like the production very much, but Jeff Daniels, who is nominated for playing Atticus Finch, Jeff Daniels is fine. He's doing Aaron Sorkin dialogue, which he loves to do. <laughs> um, so I think if you if you see it, it may very well be what you think it will be. People who love this stuff love it. <laughs> and I, I did not, but I did want to mention that one. Also in the play category is What the Constitution Means to Me, which Stephen and Trey both saw. Tell me about this one, Stephen. So we've talked in several cases about really lavish stage presentations, <laughs> uh, the rotating stage in Town, or you know, and some of these things that have been nominated for Tonys mm-hmm. for uh, technical artistry. What the Constitution means to me is not nominated <laughs> in any category <laughs> like that. It is set in uh, kind of an old-style American Legion hall. There are pictures of important men on the walls, and that's about it. And Heidi Schreck, the playwright and star, comes out and talks about her experiences giving presentations to American Legion halls about what the Constitution means to her, which when she was a teenager, she used to pay her way through college. She got enough scholarship money (laughs) talking about what the Constitution means to her that she was able to, to do that. And then this thing moves in incredibly 
unpredictable and lively and thought-provoking ways. In ways I almost kind of don't want to spoil, except to say I want it as a Netflix special right. as soon as it stops running on Broadway. Yep. I got to say, on this trip, we saw a bunch of musicals that I've been wanting to see. I saw Shakespeare that is a once-in-a-lifetime production, and this thing was the highlight of my week. I absolutely love it. It is NPR people catnip, and it is also <laughs> terrific entertainment. And without giving too much away, they do manage to bring in a couple of other characters mm. who themselves get these surprising beats. There is a 14-year-old mm-hmm. girl who comes in late in this production, and they actually have, because they do eight shows a week, and there are limits to how often you can make 14-year-olds perform, <laughs> uh, they have two 14-year-old girls that they alternate, and the one that we saw, Rosedale Cyprian, was fantastic Absolutely. and and but man you just walk away they hand out pocket constitutions yes, they do. <laughs> at this thing and you will just walk away thinking about the origins and the history of the constitution in ways that i did not expect to have coming away from a broadway production i gotta say if you have ever loved a solo show at a fringe festival anywhere yeah. in the united states or if you liked nanette on netflix yes. mm-hmm. you, this is a show that you want to see And it is an absolute miracle that it is on Broadway in a commercial production right now. Hmm. Wonderful. You'll love love this one. I want to see this one. I want to see this one. A play that I saw, and I was the only one to go out of the (laughs) folks at this table, was The Revival of Burn This, which is a Lanford Wilson play. This production stars Adam Driver and Carrie Russell. And it is about a woman who has just suffered the death of a friend, And this man, there are a couple of other characters in it as well, but mostly it is about the two of them. And this man, who Adam Driver plays, sort of crashes sideways into her life in this very loud and large way. And they have a relationship, and it's very strange. I I have super mixed feelings about this show because I felt like watching Adam Driver play this guy is sort of watching Adam Driver at the... Adam Driveriest <laughs> that you could possibly make him. He seems physically huge in it, which practically everybody who talks about this play mentions. That's all I've heard. <laughs> and he's not six foot seven. He is broad. He is like a cube. But <laughs> it's it's also just his presence in this story. He's so physically dominant in these scenes, and she's so small. Carrie Russell is a small person. But I don't know that I really understood why I was there at the end. I'm not sure the story holds together. There are individual pieces of it that I liked. You know, she has a gay best friend. This is a period piece set in the 80s. So you do get a kind of a a feel for him that he is in a very different era for gay men, even in New York than it would be now, Mm. that his fears are different and his anxieties are different. That's great. That's a good story. But I think the story of this couple is, yeah, it left me a little bit cold. I don't really get it. Wilson is one of those playwrights who I don't, I would say, is maybe not ever fit comfortably in the mainstream of American playwriting. He's always a little different and always a little complicated. Yeah. All right. Complicated plays continue with The Ferryman, which Glenn and Trey saw. (laughs) Speak to me about this play, which you have both told me is if this was extremely Adam Drivery, this is extremely Irish. Yeah. Mm. Look, the farther I get away from this, the more I like it. At the time, 
because both Trey and I are erstwhile theater critics here in D.C., where at a time, at one point, we had three different theaters that were doing Irish plays a lot. And so it got to be, after doing this for a couple of years, you would, you would sit there and think, when are the Banshees going to be mentioned? Three, <laughs> two, one. There it is. Uh, where's the Guinness? Where's the fiddle music? You know, like, and it has all this. It's basically set around the time of the Troubles, and it's about this sprawling family in a farmhouse. If I counted correctly, there are 16 of them living under one roof. Yeah, I think there's 21 speaking parts in this thing. So at one point, everybody's on stage and they're having a meal. And basically, the past comes back to haunt them because the brother of the main character, his body is discovered. It's been in a bug. Click, next, check. It's (laughs) been in a bug for 10 years. It's about the cycle of violence, where this comes from and how it keeps cycling. It's wise in that way. I like it a lot more now that I've kind of not distracted by all the stuff I've seen before. Right, yeah. absolutely. It's about 300 or 400 years of Irish and English history yeah. and how that manifests itself in the Troubles and for the people who live in, frankly, the shadow of the IRA, you know, connected to the Troubles, whether they want to be or not, right. is the big thing. It is a fascinating piece of work, relatively tight for a three-hour and 15-minute yeah. play that has songs. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to lighten up a little bit from uh, (laughs) the Irish play and talk about Tootsie, the musical. Okay. So Tootsie, as you may know, is a movie from 1982 that starred Dustin Hoffman as Teehee, a man in a dress. He's an actor who decides (laughs) to pretend to be a woman in order to get a role on a soap opera. This is a musical comedy interpretation starring Santino Fontana, who you might know as Greg from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or as a Broadway star, which he also is. And he plays the same character, Michael Dorsey, but this time he is an actor who gets a role in a Broadway musical by pretending to be a woman. And they have kept most of this story intact. They have changed it a little bit. The woman who he falls in love with while pretending to be a woman who was played in the film. This is the Jessica Lange character. They try to give her sort of more agency and some more strength and some more kind of a very different attitude toward being attracted to him. But it's still ultimately tee-hee-hee, a man in a dress. There are a lot of great supporting performances, but you cannot get away from that central storyline, which is still about how embarrassing it is for a man to have people see him in a dress, how embarrassing it is for anyone who is attracted to a woman and then they find out it is a man in a dress, how funny that is. There's sort of gay panic feelings, Mm -hmm. but it's a little different than that. It's sort of that it's a messing around with masculinity in a way that I don't think they can quite get around as much as they'd like to. And all of these things that you're mentioning remind me that when we talked about this at intermission or afterwards or whenever, in between shows, you said you weren't even entirely sure what decade this is set in. It's mm-hmm. true. I think it is meant to be present day. But then I was trying to remember whether anybody had a cell phone in it that I could remember. I'm not really sure. It feels timeless. And that kind of brings me to what the intention of this mm-hmm. show is. Yep. The intention of this show is for it to run for a hundred years. <laughs> This is the most traditional on-rails Broadway musical experience that you are going to have 
maybe for the next 10 years. If you and I don't mean this to be diminishing in any way, but if you have people who have always loved the idea of going to New York and seeing a Broadway show and they consider themselves part of a very traditional Broadway audience, this is the thing to take them to. This was an older audience than we saw, for example, at Be More Chill, and they were eating it up. The script is funny. The physical bits are funny. The show is funny. But it is on, as Glenn always says, on rails to a degree where actually at the end, the word Tootsie in lights comes down (laughs) from the ceiling during the curtain call. It is wild in that way. It's sort of wild how non-wild it is. Mm. It has an overture. It has an entract. It has all the things that lots of musicals don't have anymore. So my review of Tootsie would be, it is terrific for the people who want the most traditional of Broadway experiences and do not mind the idea of Teehee, it's a man in a dress as a punchline. Also, Santino Fontana is wonderful. He absolutely is fantastic. (laughs) I take nothing away from him. We're going to wrap up as one does. (laughs) You got to just build to the finale. Alpha and Omega. And the finale. She has been here since the beginning. (laughs) The finale is Cher. Speak to me, Glenn and Steven. Our visitors to the Cher Show. All right. We had to do a jukebox musical. I mean, we, we agreed. Somebody is going to have to go to a jukebox musical. And I figured, given the subject, that when we went to this thing, it would be a sea of middle-aged gay men. Yeah. My people. I had not accounted for the Wednesday matinee aspect of the whole it's thing. True. which you went to a Wednesday matinee. Which just was tour buses from Paramus. And that, that that's who it was. Look, Cher in the show is played by three actresses, which, of course, she is, because that's what myths do, right? You have, mm-hmm. the, you have your fates, your mm-hmm. norns, <laughs> uh, Macbeth's which is how many shares are there? Yeah, 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 right. Three shares. Uh, and uh, the performances, uh, check me here, they go right up to the edge of drag, mm-hmm. but never spill over and into anything because there is this deep well of sincerity here and share-approved content here. Yes. Very uh, share-approved. It's very self-aware. So every time they hit a jukebox musical cliche, they call it out. Like, for example, when you try to force a song lyric into dialogue and and, and mm-hmm. it always is clunky, they say, well, are you quoting your own song? I like that when it comes to these songs you know, and I, I went into this thing knowing about 63% of the share oeuvre, um, <laughs> it often doesn't come at them directly. So here's an example of a song. You'll recognize the tune, but not the tempo. You need time to move on. You need love to feel strong. Do you believe in life after love? I can feel something inside me say, I really don't think you're strong enough. I really don't think you're strong Okay, so you take this uh, auto-tuned dance hit and you turn it into a ballad, sure. The three actresses who play Cher, Stephanie J. Block, Teal Wicks, and Michaela Diamond, are all terrific. Linda, you said the words on rails before. This thing is on rails. Now, at the same time, I do think it has a little bit of a structural flaw in the second act really drags as it tries to assemble a collection of things over which Cher may triumph. And, <laughs> and so you've got this very 
amorphous representation of her relationship with Greg Allman in a way yeah. I th- that, that I thought was really cheesy. At one point, she's talking about her trials, and she talks about the fact that her second film role did not even get her an Oscar nomination. <laughs> and and at the same time, Glenn, you and I went into this thing. We bought $17 sippy cups. I got the Believe Margarita. Uh-huh. They were selling the uh, Gypsies, <laughs> Tramps, and, and Freeze uh-huh. uh, <laughs> frozen, frozen drink. I mean, I, <laughs> it, it it's up for best actress Stephanie J. Block, best lighting design, and best costume design by a little guy named Bob Mackey. Yes. So if I were a betting man, <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you feel like when they're all playing share? That they're all like, is it a single unified vision of who Cher is, no matter who's playing her? Well, you you have present day Cher, Stephanie J. Block. Now, present day being the 1980s, yeah. <laughs> which we've talked about before. <laughs> Teal Wicks is kind of Sonny and Cher show era Cher, and then Michaela Diamond is your teenage Cher, right. who is kind of just learning to become herself. They're all great. They all do exactly the voice, right? But, and and when all three of them are on stage and they're all talking like this, you kind of get this. <laughs> Wilbur kind of thing happening. <laughs> but they're all they're all basically going in the same direction. Yes, they are. It's, they are, it's yeah. Sharon, Sharon, Sharon. Like. The, the thing yeah. stops. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. So the whole question was building yes. to. Oh, the whole question was to set that oh, line up. jeez. <laughs> Trey, do you know the uh, the 1939 film The Women? Of course I you do. Okay. <laughs> I do know The Women. Uh, it's a, a camp classic, Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, black and white film, goes along and then stops dead for a fashion show. This thing stops dead for a fashion show. Oh, it's, yeah. And uh, just to get oh, the chorus girls. Gowns. Yes, to get the chorus girls into the gowns to walk across the stage while we clap. Nice. All right. So that brings us to the end of our Broadway roundup. Trey said his highlight was what the Constitution means to me. I'm going to say my highlight was Oklahoma. Stephen, what was your highlight? What the Constitution means to me, but also be more chill. Listen to the cast album. If it's for you, it's really for you. Awesome. And I would say that the prom, of course. Listen okay. to the cast album. If it's for you, it's for me. <laughs> it might be for you. Fantastic. We want to know what you think of this year's slate of Broadway shows. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH and on Twitter at PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. You can follow Trey at Trey Graham. How thank- do you spell that, Linda? It is Trey with an E and Graham like the Kareka. Uh, thank you very much, Trey, for being here and thanks to you guys for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much, by the way, to Mark Blankenship who helped us out when we were planning this trip and of course, thank you for listening. If you have a second and you're so inclined, do subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash popculturenewsletter. We will see you all right back here on Friday. <laughs>